Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is September the 14th. Um, I guess it's true what Smash Mouth says. The days start coming and they just, they don't, they don't stop coming. Well, it's good to see you. It's been uh, very difficult to get, get you on the line here. So how have you been? I've been, I've been good. Uh, yeah. I had a wedding and then uh, it attended a wedding um, and a couple other things. I feel like. I'm not I'm not sure how we got to mid September already, tail end of summer. I know we last time we talked, but um yeah, it's uh feels like a little bit of a whirlwind here. How are you how are you doing? I'm doing well. Like I think I said last time, and anytime that I get a chance to talk to you these days is a good time. So this is this is a good day for me. Oh man. Yeah, it's 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 funny this like this whole wedding planning thing. Obviously, like I'm I'm not even doing the the brunt of it, but those of you who don't know, Ricky's getting married next month. <laughs> the the like it just it looms over you. You know what I mean? It's one of those things where like you know, it's like that assignment that only takes as long as you give it, and because of the you give it like a year, it just yeah. kind of messes everything up without actually mess like there's not actually that much to do, but it hangs over your head and makes doing other things more difficult somehow um but all good things um in the end it's like a definitely a very first world complaint that i'm having right now um but but i digress anyways it's been a it's been a little bit uh what are we talking about this week yeah it has been a little bit and over the course of the last two weeks since we've talked we've the world's lost some significant figures in particular two of arguably the most influential figures of the 20th century in Queen Elizabeth II and Mikhail Gorbachev. So we figured that it would be right to just devote an episode to delving into these two seminal figures' lives. They're hugely influential and hugely complicated. And I think it'd be interesting, hope it will be interesting, to look back at what they did in their times and the legacy that they leave behind in their respective nations and, and really in, in the world. So we're really just going to talk about those two, two figures uh, this episode. Yeah. It, uh, it, as you said, sort of really defining characters for the 20th century, I think in very, you could say different, very different ways. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to to get into it. Yeah. Uh, before we do, just a quick reminder, everyone, that the broadcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. You know that they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. Uh, it's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. If you do visit them and end up purchasing anything, let them know that we sent you. Uh, and Ricky, this is not necessarily a sad episode, but because both of these figures died at 
you know, at the ripe old ages of 91 and 96, and they, they live good, full lives. Uh, but it is like this kind of memorial episode. So I, I got a question for you. Oh, boy. Why are weeping willows always so sad? I mean, I assume, actually, no. I was going to say because they're weeping, but that is the end result. <laughs> right, that's the effect of their sadness. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, the cause of their sadness is because they're always watching sappy movies. Oh, very good. Do Weeping Willows have sap? That's that's beyond my uh, my that's, that, all right. I'm missing yeah, that <laughs> in this joke. Classic. All right. Uh, we have the two figures. Uh, we felt there's no better way to start, I guess, than get to start with the queen. So when we come back, that's where we will we'll begin. So Queen Elizabeth II passed away last week and the news came, I think, as a bit of a shock, even though she's 96 years old and it's everyone kind of knew that this was coming at at some point. Right. It's just natural that she was getting up there. She was going to pass it at some point, but also she seemed in some ways kind of like indestructible. Like she was she I mean. For most of the world, she's the only queen, the most famous monarch that we've ever known. And remarkably, even two days before her death, she died on last Thursday. And two days before her death, she was greeting the newest prime minister, Liz Truss of Great Britain in person. And so it just kind of, it, it seemed in some ways to to come out of nowhere and caused, I would say, yes, surprise, shock, sadness, grief, however you want to describe it. Of course, in England and Great Britain and the Commonwealth countries, but also really across the world. She was an incredibly significant and well-known figure. Um, And so just a little bit of background on her. She was born in 1926, and she was never supposed to become queen. She was uh, King George V's King George V had two sons. She was the daughter of the second son. So her uncle was King Edward VIII. Edward VIII abdicated the throne to marry a twice-divorced American woman. Uh, kind of shockingly controversially at the time. That was 1937. So at, when her uncle abdicated the throne, her father ascended to the throne. Her, her father um, only had two daughters she was the eldest daughter and so all of a sudden when her father died um 15 years later elizabeth became became queen at the age of 25 i uh, it's an unlikely story in terms of the, the hereditary nature of of monarchies but as people probably know she was the longest serving monarch in the thousand year old history of the british empire it's well, you never say never. It's her her reign is unlikely to to be beat. Um, and just a, a few facts to try to briefly encapsulate the seventy year her seventy year reign is she she had fifteen different prime ministers of Great Britain, beginning with Winston Churchill and ending with Liz Truss, who was just sworn in last week. 
they were born 101 years apart from each other, which seems pretty remarkable. She met 13 of the last 14 U.S. presidents, all the way back to Harry Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Nixon, Carter, Reagan, the Bushes, the Clinton, the you know the Obama, Trump. She she met them all. Uh, she was the first British monarch to send an email back in 1976 and the first to send a tweet in 2014. She traveled over a million miles in her life and met over 3 million people, including visiting uh, 117 different countries. So uh, really a remarkable life. She, I guess, famously, and this is one of those kind of things that almost is like self-fulfilling when you look back on it. And uh, one of her first public speeches when she was 21, so before she became queen, she was she was prince at that point. Uh, this is a radio address, uh, I believe. She said that her whole life, which is a quote, my whole life, whether it be long or short, she'll be devoted to your service. And that really seemed to be what her life was about. And I think, you know, as Americans many of us certainly not all of us we have this like weird either interest in or obsession with the british monarchy in general or queen elizabeth maybe in particular and you wonder like why why like who cares or even like even if you live in britain obviously it's much more personal when you live in britain but the monarchy as everyone probably knows the constitutional monarchy at this point the monarchs have no real power they are a ceremonial figurehead and so why why has she provoked such such sadness and such reflection and i think one of the reasons in my opinion is because she really did embody that characteristic of public service and obviously she was born into it she is different than people that choose to go into that line of work but when she said at 21 that my life is going to be devoted to the service of the empire the kingdom the country it really seemed like for 70 years, that's what she did. And whether I think we maybe we'll get into this a little bit, whatever your feelings are on the British Empire itself, those feel separate from Queen Elizabeth, who seemed to conduct herself with maybe besides a few hiccups in 70 years, really nothing but like dignity and grace in, in her lifetime and in her and what's probably a more difficult role than we ascribe to it. So what are some of your thoughts either on her life uh, or her death? Yeah, it's it's funny because chatting with just like a few people about it um, over the weekend. And I feel like a lot a lot of people's take was, you know, you were either uh, obsessed with it and really interested or you couldn't care less. And you think, you know, monarchies are a vestige of the past and they don't have any place in in modern society. And I find myself and I don't know if this makes me an outlier, like right in the right actually right in the middle where i didn't follow too much about the lives of the royals or you know the various scandals from other members of the family as you said i think she lived a relatively um scandal free life for herself although she was sort of you know obviously as the queen um intertwined with with a lot of the goings on but um yeah, there's something about the tradition and maybe the pageantry and 
yeah, this, this relic of like an old time that somehow still exists today. And like you said, she's introduced the email and Twitter to the, uh, to the Royal family. But then there was also, you know, the, the vestiges of the past with like the, the guard that stands outside Buckingham palace and doesn't smile. And then you've got, um, all sorts of these things that really kind of just marry like the old and the new that I think are really cool in a way that we just don't have many windows into this kind of bygone era. But of course, you know, looking at history with very, very rose colored glasses being the being of Indian descent. So I know kind of what the, the monarchy's reach was um, at its height, obviously had a presence in in all continents and colonial rule has a lot of baggage associated with it and did you know in in many ways marry very terrible things but a lot of the time when i go visit my family who lives in in calcutta which was actually the the capital of india under british rule it has a lot of like the architectural pieces that old uh you know that when when Britain colonized different places, they brought a lot of these things there. And, and quite frankly, like there's no other way to say it, that they're beautiful and very different from um, the other, you know, other types of architecture in the, in the region. And so like, I have a very, I don't know, the, the ceremony and the tradition and the pageantry and all of that is so embodied in the idea of the monarchy. But then we have kind of the present day reality, which is, as you said, like more, more or less a figurehead. Although I think the queen is still technically the head of several of like the Commonwealth countries, right. As well, like similarly, symbolically so, but um, Australia and maybe even Canada, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. Um, So there, there's that just about like the institution of the monarchy that I think for me is, is very conflicting. I think it would be easy to, to sort of say that, in in so far as like the monarchy doesn't give or the idea of a monarchy doesn't give people freedom of choice in terms of who they want to lead them obviously but also laws and other types of freedoms right it's very limiting in in many ways i think there are certain aspects of it that like yeah it's very hard to reconcile why yeah. i like it but yeah. it's like I can't, I don't know. I just do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't, so as you said, she, in addition to being the the queen of Great Britain and the United Kingdom, she is also the head of state of 14 other countries, including Australia, Canada, Jamaica. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like a lot that you said that I want to get into. One, it's, as I kind of alluded to, too, it's, like the ability to separate her, the person, from what she represented. Because, like, you're right, of course, in the line of the, the British monarchy, she represents colonialism, she represents imperialism. And there's a lot of you know, atrocities that the British Empire committed in India, in Africa, in Ireland. And it's, I think, it's personal for our families in some ways, but it's personal for a lot of people across the world that are still living that in some ways, uh, that the, the legacy of British colonialism is a defining feature of, of still our world today. And so I think, I think when people, there are people that have more negative emotions and maybe are 
not exactly mourning her death recently. I, I understand that. And I, I, this is not at all to gloss over the the dangers, the the atrocities that colonialism often, Britain, British colonialism in particular, wrought across large swaths of the world. But also, I mean, she became queen in 1952. Uh, India had been freed, like Ireland had largely been freed, like the Americas had largely been freed. You know, I mean, it's, uh, she was not someone that was in charge of a lot of what the British Empire did. And so I think it's a, it's a little bit easier for me to to separate those two things. And but the second point you said in terms of like there's there is some sort of I don't know if it's like a romantic draw to the the monarchy, but like I get why the British people have it, right? I think there's like a little bit of a tendency to like kind of laugh and mock the the royal family and the monarchy. Like they don't do anything, right? They're like they're just like super rich. And you're like, as a country, why would you want to just like exalt these regular people that were just born? And then I think everyone probably knows this because before one monarchies really did reign across Europe, they all intermarried. And so like, they were all cousins of, right. of each yeah. other. Right. And, and so like the, the current, the, like the, the dynasty right now is like largely a German like oriented family. Right. They're, like that's where they came from. Like, but, and so it seems like kind of patently ridiculous in this day and age to be like, Oh, our queen and like our, now our King. And like, and especially because like they have no real power. With all that said, <laughs> I do think, think there's something to be said for like the the monarchy as an institution and what it represents and there's no like again I think we're on the same page that neither of us is like advocating for like the constitutional <laughs> monarchy here in like the United States or anywhere else in the world but I again like, I, I kind of get it in for for Britain especially I was reading a good piece where it was saying that in modern day, it seems like so many institutions and norms are either not trusted or outright like mocked or torn down. And we've certainly seen this here in the United States. Like there's no faith in the Congress as there hasn't been for a long time. Increasingly, there's little faith in the Supreme Court. And now seemingly in the last two or three presidencies, there's there's no faith in the office of the president. And so it's kind of like all of these offices because of like the flaws of individuals here in the United States have really like taken away from the respect people have for the the institutions here in the United States. And quite honestly, in Great Britain, there's been four prime ministers in the last, what, like seven years. Like we've had like, Boris Johnson. I don't really want to get into him, but like he doesn't, like, he's kind of like the Trump like figure over there where he's not exactly like showering that office in, in grace, but you have beyond it all, no matter what's happening in in the prime in in with the prime minister or at, in parliament, you always have or had the queen, and she was always just kind of above that all, and she was always the she always just commanded respect because of like the grace and dignity that she she conducted herself with, and I think there's value to that. Yeah, I I think you know as you were saying that, um, I, th- I mean, there's something to the fact that that it has lasted over a thousand years, right? This, and I think part of what you're saying is that there wasn't, and probably until really recently, this kind of disillusionment with the office and the dignity and sort of the, yeah, yeah, like all, all of it, the, 
there's there's almost this blind faith right in a weird way we when you know as students of history we talked about like the divine right of kings and that you know if you were born in one of these kingdoms and in other places in the world you know whatever in the empire of japan for instance very similar types of feelings that you have this blind devotion to your ruler and while of course us sort of exalting all of the benefits of democracy one of the weird side benefits of everybody sort of buying into something without even any reason to allows you to do certain things that you can't do if if you're constantly like at war with each other right there's something very unifying about something like a monarchy and it's because you you don't your that choice has been taken away from you and and it's hard to really compare right obviously we have so many more benefits and freedoms and things that we believe are innate to us innate to our own like personhood and and how we want to be be able to be as human beings but there are these things that you you do sacrifice and part of that is like is yeah yeah when you have more choices that you have work to do to make those choices whereas when you don't and you kind of have a direction defined for you then everything is in in kind of service of that direction and it's and it's weird and i think for her specifically her passing really feels like the end of an era in a way that that i don't know you know i don't know that that this kind of feeling can can happen again in part because of how seriously she took all of the traditions of the office despite all of kind of the modernization of everything that was going on around her like obviously she had to adopt certain things but throughout she was very very disciplined and never kind of sharing her political beliefs um you know was despite a lot of other people who were kind of close to the royal family um, either coming out and with tell-all books and other types of things like no matter what was being said about her about the family she was very steadfast in trying to sort of uphold this like stoic kind of figure and I mean I I think people will have very legitimate criticisms of that and how she behaved but there was the benefit to that is like you said, always seeming to be above the fray in some, in some way or another. Um, and I think for that alone, like it's, it's worth, um, yeah, noting on a, on a remarkable life for, for many reasons. Yeah. She was just a, a constant. And like you said, Britain's the, the British empire it has undergone huge changes in these last seven years. Like the Commonwealth of nations that we talked about earlier didn't exist when she started. And if you look at something like Brexit, there was the country was super divided on on that vote, and probably is still divided seven years later. And but her her personal opinions never came out, right? And, and I do think that's like you said, a, a unifying force. Where as much as you might be tearing yourself, you know, against each other with the the politics of the day, she was always there, and her impartiality, whether it was on British politics or world politics, like. We have no idea what she thought of Obama or Trump or any of the other 14 presidents, the other 12 presidents that she met, because th- that wasn't her job. Her, she kind of she knew what her role was, and her role was to act as the and represent the institution of the monarchy. And, and she 
did that as well as I think anybody could do. And I think, like you said, it is a little bit of an inflection point. We'll see today. And she was such a, a unique figure because she was largely so scandal free and so consistent for her entire life and so devoted to public service and so impartial and so silent. When Charles is coming to the throne and he's 73 and he's got a lot of baggage. He's got personal baggage. He's got political baggage. And I think it will be interesting to see. And I think this what people are watching where he's been a huge um, advocate of uh, climate measures in, in his life. And I think there's a lot to be commended about that. He's dedicated his life in a lot of ways to uh, making things, trying to improve or combat climate change. But that's certainly not the role that Queen Elizabeth played. We have no idea what she thought about climate change because like that, she didn't feel like that was the role of the monarch to to tell the people what to do politically. And I think in a in an age where maybe I'm projecting this a little bit from the United States to, to Britain, but probably not too much, where it seems like every political take it's split 50-50 and it's it's controversial. It'll be fascinating to see what role Charles fashions for himself as king. And if people accept that, because like we after we just spent a long time like extolling the virtues of the monarchy, I can kind of also see it being like, as you said, an end of an era. And people are kind of like, I don't need this king telling me that I shouldn't drive my car as he's flying around in private jets places. You know, what I mean, like I, I, I do feel like th- there's danger in this the reason that maybe you and I see so much value in the monarchy is actually because of Elizabeth herself. Like what the, like the, the, the virtues that we're extolling, the stability that she provides, the constancy, how much of that is, is just the way she interpreted the role of the monarch. And we'll, we'll see going forward, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it will be, you know, if, I mean, I've heard, I guess I've heard a couple of things that, um, that he is sort of understanding that he will have to kind of change a little bit of how he would take sort of public postures on certain issues. Um, but certainly, yeah, whether people in the UK feel like they still need or want this. Um, and I, and I think even for people younger than us, it's probably less of a, uh, a feeling of connection, um, even in, in the UK than, than for our generation and older, which, um, probably doesn't bode well, uh, for, for sort of the future of the monarchy, but we'll be, we'll certainly be interesting. I did. I I would, I'd be remiss because I wanted, there was one quote that I read from a writer. I don't know how to say his last name, Walter Beja, something like that. And so he, he wrote, and this has come up a lot in the discussion of Queen Elizabeth's life, that any constitutional system needs two parts, one dignified and the other efficient. So one to awe the public and one to make the government actually work. And his, this was in the 19th century, so pre-Elizabeth, but I think a lot of the reflections on Elizabeth was that she perfectly embodied that first part of it, the dignified part of it. And so like we mentioned, no matter how screwed up the prime ministers were, like no matter how inefficient the government was, there was always this dignified part that existed in itself. And it, it, like you said, it's, it's unifying in a lot of ways where we invest our president with kind of those dual roles. And when you have presidents, whether Biden or Trump or whomever, where you don't feel like they are either efficient or dignified, I think the country as a whole suffers 
both in and out from like loss of reputation, right? Like you for the UK, you might mock Boris Johnson or um, David Cameron or Tony Blair or whomever, but as you, whatever criticisms were, there was still this queen who kind of represented this dignified part of Great Britain and countries like the United States, obviously, like we don't have that. And maybe in some ways we, we suffer from trying to imbue the presidency with too much of like that old monarchy. Like not only have, do you have to do policy stuff, but you're also supposed to be the figurehead that represents the, the state. And that, that, that's maybe an impossible job. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Maybe I'll close this with, with one anecdote that I read um, that, uh, that the Royal beekeepers had to go announce the news of the queen's passing to the bees. And I thought it was like, a, like for me, it was just that great bit of like this old tradition that they're just trying to carry on and we'll see if it carries on further. I like tradition. Sue me. <laughs> so yeah, Queen Elizabeth, um, she will be missed um, in Great Britain particularly, but I would say really across the world, a life well led. All right. When we come back, uh, we'll we'll sh- shift gears to another kind of towering figure of the 20th century. So, if Queen Elizabeth II wasn't a complicated enough figure, we're now going to delve into the life and times of the last leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, who is as influential a figure in the certainly in the latter half of the 20th century as anybody you you would put them up him up there with Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher he might stand above them all as the most influential figure in the latter half of, of the 20th century he passed away in in Russia at the age of, of 91 he was born uh, in Russia in 1931 slowly worked his way. He was a a devoted communist, a devoted believer in Marx and Lenin, and worked his way up through the Communist Party over the course of his life before becoming the leader of the Soviet Union in 1985. He probably most famously was the architect of the demise of the Soviet Union, which was not his goal, but is ultimately his legacy. And it's a legacy for which he is largely celebrated in the West and largely derided in Russia and former Soviet in parts of the former Soviet Union, which I, I definitely want to get into. Uh, but the, as people probably know, the reason that the Soviet Union collapsed was that Gorbachev tried to institute reforms, and those reforms kind of out, like out, outpaced what he thought they were going to do. So he introduced these dual concepts of perestroika, which meant uh, like openness in um, in the economy. So he was trying to loosen state control of, of industry and also glasnost, which meant openness in dialogue and discussion. So trying to get like the, the public forum, met the creativity, imagination of the Soviet people, that had been repressed under communist rule for so long. His belief was that Lenin had got it right, that Marx's ideas were right, but that over the course of that previous half century, 
Soviet leaders had deviated from Lenin and Marx's ideals. And so Gorbachev was trying to reform the Soviet system so you could bring in some of these if people were more free economically and were more free politically and more free to to speak their minds, that they would be able to thrive under the ideals of communism. Obviously, his ideas, like I said, kind of out, outpaced his goals. Uh, ultimately, he was forced from the, the leadership of the Communist Party. Very rapidly, the Soviet Union fell apart as... 15 different countries split away from the former Soviet Union. And within several years of Gorbachev's reforms, the Soviet Union was no longer, and Russia became an independent country along with those other 15 previously Soviet satellite countries. So, like I said, his death for the West was, his life, I guess, was was really celebrated when, when he died um, two weeks ago now. Because for the West, he he signaled this, you know, we projected this a little bit, but this, he wants to be more like us. He recognizes the failures of communism and he wants to make it a more capitalist, a more democratic society. And our, as from the United States perspective, our great rival for the latter half of the 20th century lost, right? Like they, they gave up and they became more, they splintered and they became more like us. And so he was largely celebrated as, as a hero. And upon his death, a lot was written about what what good he did. The reaction in Russia was very different. He's a, a figure that, if maybe is, is not hated, is not looked upon fondly. Uh, he is looked upon as the leader that led to the downfall of the Soviet Union, which Vladimir Putin famously, infamously said was the worst thing to happen in, in the 20th century. Uh, so it's it's just very, like I said, very a complicated figure across the world. Ricky, what were your initial thoughts about hearing uh, of his passing? Yeah, it, it's it's funny. I mean, the the name Mikhail Gorbachev. When I like think about what I knew about him in history, like the first thing that always comes to my mind is that Reagan speech where he's like, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. And, and, and in, in, in many ways, that's kind of like the duality of his um, political career that I think that you were talking about, right. From the Western sort of European, obviously U S perspective, he was that person that, that we could work with and, yeah that that obviously instituted a lot of reforms that we would consider essentially like westernization in 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 some ways or another and then in the other respect sort of the way that putin and um potentially people who are sort of more like russian nationalist ish will refer to him as like somebody who like capitulated to the west and um and kind of undid a lot of the things about the ussr and so the I don't know. I, th- I think when I think about Gorbachev, I think a lot about taking ourselves out of like the present day construct. We- we've talked a little bit about this in sort of what is happening in, in Russia and in Ukraine right now. And I think one of the things that always strikes me is that like, I'm worried that we're putting a lot of weight on 
Russia as something that's not separate from Vladimir Putin, who's at the head. And and if we just go 20, 30 years back when Gorbachev was at the head, all of a sudden it's like a very different relationship. And I worry about not making those things possible in the future. But in terms of him as a person individually, I think he's just, he's so interesting, right? So he came to power following what they called sort of the era of stagnation when um, under Khrushchev and Brezhnev in Russia, Russia, in the USSR, they didn't have the same kind of explosive growth that we did here um, in the United States. Obviously, two two remaining superpowers following World War II, um, and they headed in pretty different directions. Um, and I think... I, I, and I think it's interesting. I, I think from how we learned about history, it was like very easy to be like, well, the two differences are capitalism and communism. And obviously capitalism is the better thing because you saw what happened in US in the USSR. And I think that that is our, our nature to gloss over a lot of the different dynamics that were going on in these in in these two very very different places and i think we're seeing some of that right now with the uss like it, we think in the us that we're fractured imagine the ussr where there are like for every country there's a different language there are you know all kinds of different cultural norms and things that they were really tenuously trying to hold together under this broader branch of of communism and then they were kind of doing it in, in obviously in a in an authoritarian fashion with very little representation. And so Gorbachev, as you were describing, came in and was like, well, if we want to start to match some of the economic development and growth that our that our counterparties in the West are, we're going to have to liberalize a little bit. We're going to have to give people more choice. Um the the glasnost being like exactly what you were describing, sort of realistically looking at freedom of the press as like a big feature that hadn't existed before. And, you know, you can argue that it's going very much in the opposite direction right now, but like allowing for criticisms of the government in a way that they had never done before. Um, And then as, as exactly as you were describing in, in many ways that led to highlighting a lot of the things that were wrong about or not wrong, but not going well in in the USSR as compared to the West in terms of economic development and opportunity um, that we can sort of point to as, as leading to sort of the dis- dissolution or the dissolvement of the thing. So he's in, in some ways this like seminal figure, but I think he gets, I think he's sort of as, sort of misunderstood by both sides in in what he was trying to accomplish and, and what exactly he ended up bringing about. Um, that was very windy, but similarly, I like, I guess I'm conflicted about him. <laughs> yeah. As I was like, reading more about him upon his passing, it seemed there's a lot to admire about him. And I'll emphasize again, if I hadn't previously that he was a devoted communist. And so from my perspective, that's not a good thing because I, I disagree with Marxism, Leninism, and I think it has wrought a lot of 
death and destruction upon the world, particularly in the, the Soviet Union under Stalin. With that said, I, like I said, there are a lot, there's a lot to admire about him as a leader. And he comes to power after a long time in the Communist Party. He believes, like I said, in communism. But he's looking around his country and he's seeing the, a big difference between what the party is saying about how great the Soviet Union is. And he's he's walking around and he's, to his credit, he's seeing the difference between that rhetoric and the actual day-to-day lives of his people. And he did, like as you mentioned, had a, have a chance to travel a little bit uh, across uh, Western Europe and got to go to West Germany and Italy and France. And he was comes back to his country and he's he's thinking like, why... Why are these countries, why are the people in these countries doing so much better than the people in my country? And like you said, he has, he doesn't see, he doesn't think the system is flawed necessarily, but he thinks there are flaws in the system and he he's trying to, to fix them. But I, I just think like as a leader where you said this is a period of stagnation, but people had just been as much as, there are values for for Khrushchev and Brezhnev in terms of how like their interactions potentially with the West and their rejection of some of Stalinism. There was maybe an unwillingness to try to to change, and he was doing it because he really he wanted to make the lives of people better in his country. And also, he uh, the reason why you had fifteen satellite countries. It, uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Ukraine, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, like all of these countries, the reason why they're all allowed to declare independence is because he wasn't going to use military force to keep them as part of the Soviet Union if they if they wanted to leave. And obviously, there had been desires to leave in the in Czechoslovakia, for instance, like there they had put down uh, a potential uh, an independence movement in the late sixties and under previous communist rule, any attempts to have independence were crushed with military force. And, and, and Gorbachev was like, I'm not, I'm just not going to do that. I am not going to put down dissent desires for independence with military force. And then lastly, he was willing to work with Reagan and Thatcher. And while obviously the things like kind of went better for the United States, his goal was to decrease like, the arms race and to de- decrease uh, the nuclear, uh, the threat of nuclear war. And he was doing that. There's some selfish reasons he was doing that because it was crippling the, the Soviet economy. But there was also some altruistic reasons where he's like, we, this is like a disaster. The, 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 the fact that we have seemingly inexorably marched towards a potentially a nuclear showdown is a disaster for the Soviets, for Americans, for the world. And he scaled it back for really the first time in what the 30 or 40 years. And so for all of those reasons, it just seems like that would those are qualities that I think would be admirable in any leader in any country in any era. Yeah. I mean the the nuclear non-proliferation treaties um all a lot of i think i think mutual destruction of like nuclear tipped warheads um between the US and the USSR during his time were huge he also ended the soviet occupation of afghanistan which was a 9 or 10 year uh effort um on on their part i i i yeah i i, I totally um 
I, I totally agree. I, th I think the, 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 I don't I, yeah, I'm not, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm conflicted in, in that. I think, I think a lot of when we think about sort of modern day Russia and the former Soviet Union, we think about, we constantly think about this idea of re repression. Um, but I mean, for 30 years, right, the Soviet Union also like dom like co-dominated the Olympics with the U.S. Their arts and culture, uh, though relegated to, to certain people who were sort of allowed to pursue it, were were certainly a part of that. I think I, th I think the I, I guess I guess my my where I get where I struggle like right free college education there were a lot of other pieces and certainly we can argue about what what was effectively good for society and not we had here in the United States obviously a lot of natural resource benefits um, things that weren't really being explored in the USSR at the time that contributed to our sort of explosion in wealth as a country relative to the rest of the world. And I, I think, and I'm, and certainly capitalism is a contributing factor, but I don't know. I, I view his time as like a, the, in, in many ways, like the death knell of what we think of as sort of the, the communist or Marxist ideals. And I'm not, I don't ad advocate for those to the letter, but I think, I think the problem is, is, is it, it gets back to like always the slippery slope that like, Oh no, no, no. We're just one step away from all of a sudden going back to the USSR where people were being rationed for food and nobody had any opportunity and you couldn't do whatever you wanted to do. And I, and I like always worry, I, I think in many ways, Gorbachev was looking for ways to evolve their system. And a lot of that meant challenging historical norms around power consolidation and what we will and will not allow to be said. And um, I think in many ways that idea is so necessary, but it's difficult and that's yeah i think that's like the the trick and i it, it's hard to say whether he rode that line right because in many ways you'll look at him as as like i think the day after he resigned was like basically the last day of the ussr um but i think that that there is something important to that self examination and to not like i think right when we look at democ when we look at our democracy and we look at our capitalist market-driven economy, we're seeing, we do see a ton of benefits, but you can look at certain instances like what's going on in the energy market today, or uh, I don't know, even like the stock market when we talked about what was going on with GameStop, that there are these instances where the market's not functioning the way that we want it and the outcomes are not necessarily the best outcomes. And we we think about it as this like dichotomy with you, you, you're either capitalist or you're communist. But I think in some ways, what Gorbachev was trying to do is like blend a bit of the systems in that we could be more open while still providing 
a bit of a floor. And so from that perspective, I was, you know, I, I will always admire him, but then, you know, there, there are sort of many other flaws to, to sort of how he went about things as well. So I, I don't know. I, I guess that same, same sort of thing. That's how I started, right? He's a super complicated guy. And I think to, to the, what you're just speaking to is that he was for more openness and more freedom. But then once it started getting like a little out of hand, he was trying, he he tried to rein it in. And that's why he was eventually forced to resign by Boris Yeltsin, who was like, all right, dude, now you're like, you're not enough of a reformer. And that's why like, one of the reasons I think there was a 2017 poll that in terms of favorability, he had like 8% favorability in Russia. And some of that is probably Putin's uh, version of history that he has promulgated for the last two decades. But also it's, he was just stuck where he was trying, like the, he was trying to make it better, but for some people he had made it worse. And for other people, he hadn't made it good enough. And it just like the, the classic reformer case where there's always people that are going to say you're doing too much and other people saying you're doing too little, but to, to the nuclear non-proliferation, like, again, that was 40 years of just stalking arms before Gorbachev and Reagan, but I would probably give a little more credit to Gorbachev here, came to the table and started decreasing the amount of nuclear weapons. And Thatcher had a quote when she first met him was, I think she said, Mr. Gorbachev, he's someone, I like him, he's someone we can work with. And when we translate that to nowadays, we've talked about this a lot, like under the Trump and Biden eras of, there's maybe a lot of people out there that we don't really agree with what's going on in that country. And we don't really agree with decisions they've made for whatever reason. We can be talking about um, Kim Jong-un or Xi Jinping or Mohammed bin Salman, like, but Reagan and Thatcher and Gorbachev, for all their disagreements, which you would argue maybe were a lot deeper than any disagreements we have with Xi Jinping or Mohammed bin Salman, were able to get together and work together for the, the benefit of, like I said, the world. And Gorbachev won the 1990 Nobel Peace Prize. And as you probably admire even more than I do, he faced a huge backlash in his country from like the military industrial complex that the Soviets had relied on for 40 years. But he was looking at it being like, we are spending hundreds of billions of dollars on nuclear arms every year and people are starving. And for him, he was like, this doesn't make any sense. Why? Like, we need to fix this system. And despite the huge pushback he got, he was committed to doing it. And so again, a flawed, complex individual, but from my perspective, a lot to admire about his goals and in, in how he wanted to lead his country and treat his people. Yeah, maybe we can put a pin in it there. Yeah, uh, we're not quite done. There's, there's one more thing we wanted to discuss in this episode, and we will do that when we return. So as you said, we are recording on September 14th, and we would be remiss if we didn't also honor all of those who perished in 9-11. This is an episode about people who passed and who lived good but complicated lives, and I'm sure that uh, that applied in, in spades to the, the 2,977 people who died in the the attacks on September 11th. There's not a, a whole lot new to add to this. We, You and I talked more deeply in an episode, actually the second episode we ever recorded 
So if anybody wants to listen to that, we gave our personal memories of that day from our perspectives. We were in middle school at the time, but that this isn't really the point for that. People can go back and listen to that if they want to, but there were 2,753 people killed in the World Trade Center and the surrounding areas, 184 at the Pentagon, 40 in Pennsylvania. Um, in particular, there were 333, 343 members of the New York Fire Department, uh, 71 police officers, 55 military personnel at the, at the Pentagon, um, 265 people that were on the four planes. There, aside from the fact that <clears throat> It's this is something that we should bring up every year. I think what struck me this year and why I particularly wanted to spend at least a few minutes talking about it was it snuck up on me. And I'm not I'm like, I'm kind of embarrassed, maybe even a little shamed about that, where all of a sudden it was like maybe like the afternoon on Sunday. And I was like, oh, oh, man, it's, it's September 11th today. Like I hadn't even really thought about it at all. And obviously last year with the 20th anniversary, that got a little more coverage. But I was like, I, I told you, I, I read the Washington Post, there was, there was one article about it. And it was like buried, it wasn't on, on the headlines, I didn't see anything, like any big ceremonies that were really happened that were advertised. I know that they existed, but it didn't seem like they got a lot of press coverage. I get emails from politicians all the time asking for money. And I got almost none asking or just being like, hey, remember September 11th. And so I was watching 60 Minutes did a piece, and they probably have run it before on Sunday night, and I was watching that. And one of the women who was speaking, she was a NYFD, and she was there that day and is still a part of the force. And she was, you know, through tears, she was saying, I don't want this to just be something that's in a history book. And, And you teach it in class, and then you turn the page. And part of that's inevitable. The, the way that I always thought Pearl Harbor was in a history book, because it's impossible for me to ever explain what it was like living through that. Um, and there are other instances too, but it feels uh, a little disheartening. And again, this isn't really a criticism of anyone else as much as it is just me and in every like society where it just feels like if this is going to be something we teach in a history book, it, it shouldn't be there yet. I think that's, I think that's well said. All right. Yeah. And I, I think I would encourage anybody. I, I don't think it's ever too late. The, the, um, the 60 minutes piece was excellent of just the, the brave individuals. I think they do a great job or did a great job focusing on several individuals and the sacrifices they made, whether it was in the trade centers, the firefighters in particular who were choosing to to go to what they knew might be their death uh, to try to save as many people as possible. The, the bravery of the people on the United 93, the plane in Pennsylvania. And three days later, a week later, a month later, it's, it's worth remembering the, the heroism of all of those individuals that lost their lives trying to, to save other people. And so I hope next year I do a better job of commemorating that day because it's, 21 years ago, like we, like you and I said two years ago, we remember exactly where we were that day, how scary it was. Something, uh, it's maybe easier that I haven't lost anyone personally, but for some people, their husband, their wife, their dad, their mom, their brother, this never came home that day and they have to live with that every day. And uh, 
I know that happens all over the country, all over the world every day, but this feels like something that we should spend some time every year acknowledging and, and thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, it's obviously these types of moments of tragedy are, um, they're sort of hard to force yourself to reflect on them and to, to really spend the time with them. But in, in so many ways, especially during the events themselves, just reveal so much about the capacity for, for human beings to do incredible things that, that, yeah, just go be, go beyond what, what you could imagine and, and really surpass all of anything you'd see in a movie or, or reading a book. It's, um, it's, uh, yeah. And incredible is like a weird word to use, but, but really I, I feel like it's, it's hard. It's hard to believe sometimes what, what people were, were willing to do kind of knowing exactly, you know, what they knew the, the, the flight, um, 83 or the, the FDNY heading up those towers as, um, just yeah it's uh it's one of those things that that yeah if you don't if you don't spend a moment to think about it you can really gloss over it quickly but it's it's worth it because there's so much going on in the world and so much yeah ridiculousness that sometimes we forget yeah how much how much good people can do and for for other people um that it's yeah it's worth it absolutely so just maybe to tie all three of these segments together it's there's something to take from all of these people's the way they lived and the way they died and so whether it's queen elizabeth ii or michael gorbachev or all the people that perished in the 9-11 attacks uh, hopefully there's something to learn and as sad as each of the deaths was to various extents um like inspiring in a lot of ways to their lives hmm. all right bud hopefully i'll see you soon hopefully later see we stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads Running around till we forget where it was We began Some mornings you were away Some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for Hope I used to find in a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because even though we did not share The pains we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better than a rain. 
Somewhere online We seem to have forgotten Values sometimes being wrong Some mornings you away Some morning let your ego bruise But what I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share Like American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning bus I need an early morning bus There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days we'll leave your ego through But what I wouldn't give for Hope I used to find And chase the lion's head From folks of different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because Though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning bus. I need an early morning bus.